Uh, you'll be glad to know I'm not, I'm not going to teach for a long time this evening, but I'm going to start a new series that we're doing tonight called This Coming Kingdom. And this is really a series all about the, the kingdom of God and what that means. Let me just give you a verse before we uh, get into this tonight. This is what, what Colossians chapter 1 verse 14 says, that Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> yeah, can, can you see me? <laughs> um, and uh, so here's the thing. There's this thing called the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, and it's a place that you can come into and experience for yourself. And tonight, you might feel like you're on the outside of that, looking in, but actually, it's very simple to enter the kingdom of God. It's to put your faith in Jesus and to receive the forgiveness for sins, all the wrong stuff we've done in our lives, and we find ourselves in it. But here's what we're looking at tonight. What is the kingdom of God? And we're going to look at a parable, or two parables, two little stories that Jesus told uh, to help us understand what it was. So you, does that sound good? We're going to read this together. So, um, <laughs> Wow. This is amazing. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. That's a different message there. Here we go. Different one. Here we go. Right. Okay. This is Luke chapter 13. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like and what shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Seeds becoming trees, yeast mixed in flour. These are the illustrations that Jesus uses to answer the question. I don't know if you've experienced tension in your life. Do you ever feel tension sometimes between different things? Perhaps you've come to Edinburgh to study and you've got that tension of studying hard to get a degree but also incurring massive amounts of debt at the same time. And you think, that's a tension, isn't it? Is that going to be worth it? You hope so. That's why you're here. Or the tension between living your life as a single person, which has many benefits, and some, uh, and some drawbacks, or living your life as a married person with many benefits and some drawbacks. Those things are tensions. They're the choices that we make in our lives. Do you go for the well-paid job, which requires you to give sacrificially of much of your spare time, but it's going to really scratch where you're itching and really challenge you and help you uh, to, to feel fulfilled in what you do? Or do you go for the job that helps you maintain a lot of flexibility so that you can give your time to other things and friendships and church. And, and here's the thing, we live our lives with these tensions. They're, they're not right and wrong things necessarily, but they're tensions that we face. Now, here's the question being asked by Jesus today. It's, it's resolving this question of tension. What, what does the kingdom of God look like? And it's interesting that Jesus asks the question. Have you noticed that about Jesus? If nobody's asking the question, he asks the question. And some of us, I don't know about you, I'm rubbish at asking questions. I like to go to conferences where there's other people who ask the questions, and I think, oh, that was a great question they asked. Because I never know the right questions to ask. 
And Jesus' disciples were like that. They didn't often know. Nobody was saying, Jesus, will you tell us what this kingdom of God is like? So Jesus said, I bet you're asking, what is the kingdom of God like? It might be that you want to come on the Alpha course, by the way, because the, the Alpha course raises lots of questions that, that then it systematically answers in a brilliant way. And uh, uh, so here's the question that Jesus is answering. What is the kingdom of God like? How does it resolve these tensions? I, I remember my... Um, it, it, there's this theme throughout the teaching on the kingdom of God in the, in the Gospels. That it's this sense of now and not yet. When Jesus told these stories, the, his Jewish audience were really expecting that the Messiah would come and he'd vindicate Israel, the Jewish nation, and he would kick out all of their enemies and show everybody who was king. That was their understanding. That was their only understanding of the kingdom of God coming. And Jesus comes in weakness. He comes as a baby born in a stable, and he grows up, and he teaches. And he teaches this, that the kingdom is now, but it's also to come in power in the future. And if we're going to understand the kingdom of God, we understand that, that it's both of those things. I remember when my son Ben, he knocked his uh, front teeth out when he was two years old. He fell off a fence and there was blood and it, you know, it, was, it was all very traumatic for the, for the little guy. And uh, anyway, he'd calmed down, we'd cleaned him all up and, uh, and I tried to comfort him and I said, don't worry Ben because one day your teeth will grow again. And uh, as he was going to sleep that night, he says, Dad, will my teeth be there tomorrow? Because his hope, I mean, his only timeline is tomorrow or the next day. I said, well, maybe tomorrow, Ben. Maybe. Maybe three years' time or something like that, which is actually what it was. But they're there. They're there now. Because there's a futuristic element to life, and there's a futuristic element to the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus told this story from, um, about the, the, the mustard seed becoming a tree, his listeners would have immediately thought of a, a story, a dream that happened in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, where a pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it. And this is the dream that that king had. He says, I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under, its wild uh, under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From, uh, from it, every creature was fed. But then in the dream, it gets cut down. And he calls Daniel, who's a dream interpreter, and he says, Daniel, tell me what this dream means. And Daniel says, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar? You were having a dream about yourself. He says, you were dreaming that your kingdom would one day touch the sky and it would reach out right across the earth and it would, it would be the center of all things and everybody would be revolving around your kingdom. But then God cuts it down. God doesn't have any rivals. In Daniel chapter 2, there's another picture of a statue representing all earthly kingdoms. And then a rock not cut by human hands. 
which represents God's kingdom, strikes the statue and breaks it to pieces. And then that rock becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And it's a picture of the kingdom of God, how it grows and fills the whole earth. What Jesus is answering in this parable is, well, what does it look like for the kingdom of God to grow? And the answer is this. It, it looks like yeast in a pile of dough. It looks like a seed growing in frailty and becoming a tree. That's the tree in its fullness. And uh, we all know what the best kind of bread looks like when it's done, don't we? There we are. <laughs> there is no other bread that we could dream of at this time of night. Pizza. So here's the thing. In our Christian life, we really want the finished article. We love things that are in their fullness. But the kingdom of God between now and when it comes in full is always going to be a messy business. Do you understand me by that? So we're always going to see things not as complete as they will be at a future moment. Um, now, let's look at these two phrases then. It's both now and it's not yet. So Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, here it is or there, because the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Here's what the Pharisees were saying. Tell us when it's going to happen, Jesus. He says, it already has. I'm already here. Since Jesus came, the kingdom of God is on the earth. And it has been all the way from Jesus all the way to now. But it's not fully there yet because Jesus told us to pray, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, there's a, a verse at the end of Revelation. It promises that one day Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. Isn't that a remarkable promise that tears will be wiped away. In this life, in this messy, doughy kind of life, we experience mourning, we experience pain, we experience sorrow. That's, that's even part of the Christian life. It's not that suddenly I became a Christian, all my problems disappeared. Woohoo! No, we, it's mixing in the dough. But in the midst of that, we have hope that one day he wipes our tears away. Let me read you another verse from 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, which is another remarkable... It says, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. What we, have, uh, what we will be has not yet been made known. Here's the remarkable thing. You became a Christian. The Bible says that you are now children of God. I'm a child of God. The thing is, we go to work tomorrow morning, we study, whatever we do. Nobody looks at us and says, whoa, look at them. Child of God, right there. They say, they look so ordinary. But that promise is this. What they will be has not yet been made known. But one day, it will. And therefore, we keep this hope and it keeps us pure. It keeps us motivated to keep walking on. Let me give you three applications of this parable before we finish. 
Here's the first one. If this is the nature of this kingdom, that it's both now and not yet, if it's messy in this interim phase, then it requires us to believe, to have faith and patience. There were two, uh, two disciples of Jesus called James and John, and they were eager for the kingdom of God. And they talked about it on more than one occasion, saying, Jesus, when's the kingdom coming? They went to a village that, that refused access to Jesus. They said, oh, we don't want to hear from Jesus. So James and John, they were like, Jesus, could we have judgment day now? Can we call down fire on this village? And Jesus turns to them and rebukes them. He says, no, 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 it's not for now. Because God is patient. He wants all people to come to know him. And he's taking his time about that. It's now and not yet. It will be one day in its fullness, but we don't experience it fully now. That means that when we pray for some stuff, it doesn't always happen now. My, uh, my kids went to a, a youth event called New Day um, a few weeks ago, and they saw some remarkable miracles. They heard testimonies from the stage of, of people with, with legs that were different lengths growing, of people with conditions that they'd had for many years being totally healed. And they came home sharing uh, with me and, and the rest of the family and, and, uh, and uh, just saying, wow, this happened and that, and God did this. And my son, Ben, who's uh, eight years old, he, he, uh, he said, wait a minute. He says, Dad, how come when you pray for us, this doesn't happen? <laughs> and I think, because it's now and not yet. That's why. But by faith and patience, we wait. Here's the second point of application. We rejoice and we value and celebrate the small successes. Because from the smallness of a seed comes a tree. There was a, a prophet in the Old Testament uh, by the name of Haggai. And one of his encouragements to the people of God was this, because they were just a bit discouraged. Everything seemed like quite slow going. They weren't rebuilding the temple as fast as they hoped they would. And, and he comes to me and says, don't despise the day of small things. You know the day of small things? You know what I mean by that? When things don't seem to be as fast and as good as you would imagine they would be. We'd love to lead people to Christ in their dozens and hundreds. But instead, we say, you know, wouldn't it be great to get them to a quiz night? Wouldn't that be a great stepping stone? And yes, it would, because we celebrate the small things as we invite people into community, believing that as we do that, he'll lead people through to know him. Here's the third application we do we step out and we pray in expectation in hebrews 12 it says strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees here's the thing about this kingdom if one day dough is going to become bread if one day a seed is going to grow to become a twig is going to grow to become a little sapling is going to grow to become a tree then that means as we go from day to day, week to week, we should be expecting more and more of this kingdom to come. So therefore, we don't just say one day, one day, therefore it doesn't require anything of me now. It requires faith and patience. It requires me to rejoice in the small things and it requires me to act as if that kingdom is coming now. You know, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. 
I was just thinking of a, a story of a, a famous character in church history. His name was William Booth, William and Catherine Booth. And they founded what became known as the Salvation Army. That's them. They look pretty ordinary, don't they? Just seeds. <laughs> just messy, dough kind of characters they were. Do you know, William Booth was a, a failed street preacher. He used to preach on the streets and people used to just pelt him with eggs and, and not listen to a word he said. And one day when he was walking home, after another unsuccessful preaching expedition, he walked through the east end of London on his way home and he just saw kids lying in doorways and people drunk and out of their head and, and people living in abject poverty. And he realized that this is where he needed to begin. And he, got, he went home that night and he, he found his, his wife, uh, Catherine, at home and he said, darling, I've, I've found our destiny. And the Salvation Army which is still known today as an organization working all around the world, it started in the east end of London. And they just started caring for the people that were poor in front of them. And they started expressing something of the kingdom of God, something of the love of God. And they used to feed hungry people and care for people in need. Do you know what they used to do sometimes was, um, have you ever heard the phrase, if somebody's on the wagon? Do you know, do you know that came from the Salvation Army because what they would do was they would basically round up people who were lying drunk on the floor in the street and they'd put them on the back of their wagon and then they'd tow them to their church and then they'd sober them up, they'd tell them about Jesus, they'd become Christians and then they'd become their army officers, the Salvation Army officers, and they'd go and tell other people about Jesus. And that's what they used to do. In fact, the, the pubs of the day used to go out of business because they were starting to see more and more people who were alcoholics becoming Christians and putting their faith in Jesus. They infiltrated brothels and rescued sex slaves. And in just a few decades, they spread from the east end of London to 100 countries and today have 3 million volunteers helping 30 million people around the world. You know, the Church of Jesus grew from 120 men and women in an upper room to 2.18 million billion people today. And it's the most wonderful force for good in the world. The kingdom of God is the kingdom for good. And he's called us as a church and his church worldwide to be an agent of that kingdom. So I'd love to take you to take a couple of minutes just to, to think and to perhaps just chat to somebody next to you. And I want you to ask this question. We're going to just come and worship God again in just a moment. Here's the question I want to ask. What is it that frustrates you in this world that we live in that you would love to see God change? That's one question that you can ask. You probably have a dozen things that you could ask. If there was one thing, what would it be? Here's the second thing that you could ask. What would I love God to change about my life in order for that to happen? So you take a, take a moment to think about that and then maybe if you, if you feel like it, you could turn to somebody next to you and just say, hey, this is what I feel it would be my answer to that question. So, uh, and then we'll come and worship God again.